This is Women Authors of Achievement Podcast, episode 82 with guest Lucille Bonin. Hello everyone, I'm your host Daria Savorova and welcome to The Conversation. Today in the studio I welcome Lucille Bonnet, who currently serves as the Head of Research and Development at Cambrium, a company focused on sustainable innovation through molecular design and precision fermentation. Lucille is a research and development professional with expertise in chemistry, predictive analytics, innovation strategy and materials development. In our conversation, we explore Lucille's journey to becoming a scientist and how the informed naivety approach, as she calls it, has been her weapon against imposter syndrome. We also learn about the groundbreaking events in science back in 2020 that has changed the direction of Lucille's life forever. And of course, we didn't forget to talk about artificial intelligence and the role of AI in enabling protein design. So without further ado, let's jump into this enlightening conversation with Lucille. And if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to rate it on Spotify, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or simply share it with a friend. Hello, Lucille. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you today in the studio. I know it's very cold and rainy outside. Unfortunately, it feels very autumn already. But here we are in a cozy, sunny studio and going to talk about many exciting things. I always love to welcome scientists here. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Daria. Very happy to be here. Speaking of science, I mean, I'm curious because everyone has their own journey to understanding what they like in life, to understanding what they want to do in their life. And I'm curious, like, what is your journey to discovering that inner scientist, that very curious person that wants to ask how this world is made and see how they can contribute to it? Yeah, I think that describes pretty well a scientist. I'm not going to lie to you, it's not been very straightforward for me all the time. So I have to say, right now I'm a chemist. Uh, I trained as a chemist. I'm working for a biotech startup in Berlin, and yeah, I'm head of research and development there. When I was a kid, as you said, I was super curious. I was always having this why phase where I was asking tons of questions. Why is it burning my skin when I'm on the sun or what's the, why are the leaves green, etc.? Mm -hmm. And this phase kind of never stopped with mm -hmm. me. I was always asking why, 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 which I think was basically one trait of my personality being super curious and just like embracing what I call my inner scientist now. And sorry, where did you grow up? I grew up in France in, in the West uh, on the Atlantic coast, which was yeah a very beautiful place to grow up. Well, yeah. What's the name of the city? Or uh, Close to La Rochelle. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. It's incredible. It's amazing. Yeah. A lot of this beautiful like Atlantic ocean breeze. Yeah. I've been raised, uh, yeah, watching the waves, surfing with my parents. So I've been very lucky for that. People very often ask me why I am in Berlin right now. But actually, I love being here. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can always go back for a little surfing retreat. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, extremely curious. And then I have a little story when I was with my mother, just to explain you how curious I was. I think I was sitting five years old in an airport just with her coming back from my holidays from uh, winter from Madrid. And I was super frustrated that the plane was taking so long to come back to France and it was for the winter holiday. So, you know, Santa Claus was a big thing for me as a kid. And I think I had already a little bit of an analytical thinking. And I was like, come on, like, how come that I'm taking eight hours to come back to France with a plane when actually Santa Claus is going around the world in one night? So I was start starting challenging my mother about crazy concepts. She was very like, I think very also frustrated that she had to tell me at that young age that actually Santa Claus was not existing. She was like, oh, this child is complicated. <laughs> yeah. And she was, yeah, she's not a scientist. So for her, it was a little bit 
yeah, awkward to have those kind of questions from a kid. But I really love those questions. And I was always asking why and trying to figure out what is true, what is not true, and what I should basically do in the future. And I think that made it very, very obvious for me to study science. So I started going into different classes. I was amazed about understanding how electricity is working. You know, all those kind of things you learn in, in science, class, science class in the beginning. But I have to say, yeah, in the 2000s, when you were studying chemistry, which is basically where I did my bachelor after my uh, high school, I kind of had like almost an identity crisis. I don't know if you remember when you grew up seeing scientists basically as role models or in like series that were pretty nerdy and serious and maybe also sometimes lonely. And I didn't feel like that. So a little bit nerdy, weird. Yeah. I have a couple of like American series now in my head, usually yeah, exhausted mm -hmm. as well. <laughs> also pretty lonely in their lab. And I mean, I don't mean at all that a scientist must be like that, but that was the pictures I had from, from growing up. So it was a little bit hard for me for a couple of years, especially during my bachelor's, to really identify and just like embrace my, my inner scientist. Mm. I liked what I studied, but I could not really like connect who I'm going to become professionally and also my personal self. So yeah, I really had to think about role models, uh, which were hard to find at the time, and people around me who were actually studying the same thing than me. So I think I had a wow moment during my master's, which kind of Mm -hmm. changed my mind about that. When you study a master in science, you start to have more freedom and creativity into what you're doing because in the bachelor, you study more the basics and then you just like grow into the scientists in a more creative way. And yeah, I had those moments in the lab where I was studying a certain method to basically see with a microscope to an atomic level. And this was for me like mind-blowing. I was like, okay, here I am. I, I can understand so much stuff thanks to all those tools. And I can also be creative on the side. And I think that's there in my master's that I started being like a little bit more embracing my inner scientist, met more people who actually worked on very cool different projects. I think at this time I was fully on board to be a scientist in the future. So yeah, as I told you, not always straightforward. I think as a kid, very curious, but then a couple of struggles along the way to actually keep going. Are there a lot of women in science in, in France? I was actually part of a program with a scholarship to study science. So I think this talks about the numbers that there is very few women in science, uh, especially when I actually started to, to study. So there is a bit more st women studying biology. I think in chemistry and physics, where I've been, I was always in classes where a majority of male students were there. Uh, so I think that was also pretty complicated for me to just, you know, identify and feel part of this group um, mm -hmm. because I didn't have a lot of representations there. So, uh, but yeah, I had a scholarship to to do my master's, which was very positive, And I think now numbers are going up. That's um, good. But I mean, speaking about that as a woman in science, have you experienced imposter syndrome in as you started entering the, the workforce a bit? Yeah, many, many times. Uh, and I think I, I still feel like it. I think one experience which talks a lot about that. So I, I had my first job in Germany, uh, in a German company, which was super exciting for me. I was already studying abroad, but I was really happy to be able to stay abroad to actually um, start on my first job. So German company in Germany, usually you, you have meetings in German. And my German was good at the time, but not good enough to actually hold a meeting. So I was there in those meetings feeling very uncomfortable and stressed and almost scared as a junior, right, to not really understanding everything people were telling to me. So it's almost like a, a double bind, right? You have the difficulty of the language, you're a junior. 
So in those moments, I really felt like an imposter, right? Because I was hired on a job, but I was not able to basically be my full professional self, so to say, in those meetings. So very hard moments. But then after a while, I was like, come on, you learn so many stuff. Just like keep pushing. And I think you're going to understand at some point what's going on. Uh, I was still understand, I think, 60%, but I was not enough, I think, for me to make me feel very comfortable. So all those moments, I think, really told me a lot of self-trust and also that everything is kind of learnable, right? Mm -hmm. There is something you mentioned was which I found very interesting, like wording, informed na naivety, mm -hmm. as you said, was like it, it's kind of your approach and a weapon against imposter syndrome mm -hmm. and something that you've been using throughout your life whenever there was such a situation and also helps you to not overthink your decisions. Mm -hmm. What does this approach consist of? Yeah, that, that's kind of a concept of basically not looking too far down the line and being basically naive enough to not see, to see part of the challenge, but not all of them to go there mm -hmm. and basically get as many information as you can to just inform your decisions. So keeping like this like kind of lightweight naivety that you can have when you're a kid and are like basically not scared about anything, but at the same time taking your adult knowledge and skills to basically try to inform it and not going through crazy situations that you don't want to be in. But I, I have those couple of moments like this meetings all in German when I could not understand, which are like basically kind of like nourishing this kind of concept, which make me dare to take certain decisions without overthinking too much in the future. And I think that's very helpful just to make it a little bit more lightweight sometimes um, and just go for what you feel like is the right thing to do. Yeah, I'm trying to think with the situations where I use that because I feel like it's such a nice approach. You're not scared. You're, as you said, you just allow that there is some kind of maybe knowledge lacking or you allow the situation is not complete and you're just fine with it, but you're trying your best. Mm -hmm. And I think, and ultimately, that's basically the first step of any growth. That's the first step of mm -hmm. any problem solving. It's not going to be pitch perfect mm -hmm. at the beginning, but you need to trust the process and have access maybe to the right resources along the way to solve for it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I feel like we are kind of like at the beginning, we're like, oh, no, 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 this is scary. Yeah. This is not for me. But yeah, I think it's it's very helpful to sing this way. I think the main keyword is you're trying to do your best. And I think I really try to apply that to the people with who I'm working, my team and other people. But sometimes it's very hard to apply to yourself, right? Like you never think you're at your best. You think always you can do better. But yeah, this concept of informed naivety, yeah, kind of made me like take a couple of moves that I think were the right one. Mm -hmm. um, and if I would have think about all the steps that I would need to take to actually achieve what I wanted to do, probably I would not have done it. So yeah, it's a little bit of a, also a connection with your inner child, I guess, um, yeah. to do so. And, and there's also something I ask you that I think makes sense that we speak about it as well, is you spoke about the importance of treasuring your time and monitoring your energy a lot. And why do you think this has been such a highlight, such a focus point for you? Mm -hmm. I think I learned it the very hard way. I didn't really monitor my time, especially as a junior, in my first job really well. Um, so I think I got to this point many, many times where I was exhausted and stressed before I was actually able to realize that I needed a break. And I'm probably still doing it. But I think monitoring your time is, is very important, especially when you're in a managerial role or also a leadership role. You're basically almost like a generator of energy for the people. It's kind of part of your job description, right? 
Yeah. Basically, you help other people to keep them energized and motivated, right? Yeah, and help them finding and doing the stuff they love. But if you don't have energy into it, I don't know how you could ask people to actually do those things. So right? what are your tips? Like, how do you help yourself staying afloat? How I do that, I try to have solo holidays time to times. I like to go to yoga retreats, for example, which help me take distance with things uh, and always try to plan them ahead, right? So that's something I'm trying to do. And then I think we all have to have a couple of energy anchor also in our, our daily life. Um, so I think sports for me is really like a, a good time to forget about a lot of things I'm worried about. So I really try um, in the morning, especially uh, before work, to go for a little sports session. It really helps me gathering my energy and also center a little bit on, on myself and yeah, uh, makes me very relaxed. For yeah. the day. I, I totally feel you. I actually had also guests on the show. We talked about bringing like traditional wisdom or little like rituals from your family to help you like maintain your physical and mental well-being. Mm -hmm. And I also, I think once talk also with Women Authors of Achievement community about like for me, I have this little ritual of actually biking to the studio. Oh, nice. And it helps me to kind of switch. It doesn't matter what kind of weather. Mm -hmm. I'm always committed to biking. But it helps me like switch my head kind of focus from maybe a daily work to actually getting into the mood for, for our conversation today. Mm -hmm. And it's such a small thing. It's just like a 10 minute, 15 minute bike mm -hmm. ride, but it does magic. Like I, I completely like turn on different personality. So I totally feel you I love that. <laughs> with the yeah. solar retreats. Oh boy, <laughs> I need more of those. Something that you also mentioned when we were riding is there was something shifted in your life as well. And some changes that happened to you and those were impacted because of the two very like groundbreaking events in science that happened in 2020. And, you know, they affected the world globally, but also you specifically. And, and why do you think it was not only groundbreaking for the world, but also in your life, you decided to make this certain changes? Mm -hmm. So we talked about impact before and, you know, I'm a chemist and so far, I think I managed to fulfill a couple of values in my job, but impact was always something I was struggling a lot with. So I was thinking for a while, jumping to another kind of scientific discipline, which is biology. Both are very different. They are different trainings. In 2020, there were two big groundbreaking events which happened. So the first one was two female scientists uh, based in the US and uh, in France, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier. They were awarded with the Nobel Prize of Chemistry for the CRISPR-Cas9, which is an amazing technology. So what we call it the genetic scissors. So they help you basically take biological molecule and edit them the same way you would edit a text on the computer. So it's very precise and uh, it was groundbreaking in the life science. It will help like cure a lot of diseases. So it was really, really big. So this first one. On the other hand, exactly at the same time, uh, there was a big leap into computational biology. So it's using computers to understand biology. So there is a company, DeepMind, which is basically a, a Google company who is working on a program called AlphaFold, which helps understanding and computationally, so everything in silico, how proteins are structured. And they managed for the first time with very, very high precision to predict the exact structure of a protein. This is very mm -hmm. important because you understand what proteins are able to do, their functions, when you understand how they fold, basically. Just to give you an idea, a scientist would take maybe a decade to figure out this question. And they manage with a computer program. So that was really, really wow. big. So you put those two elements together. So you have the genetic scissors, 
like this editing tool for biology, which makes you being much more flexible. And then you have this computational program, which helps you understand much better protein and much faster. And at the same time, I was interviewing for a startup in Berlin, which is called Cambrium, which is a company I'm working for, uh, who is aiming to use exactly both those tools together to basically create mm. and use protein to craft new materials to replace harmful chemicals that so we are like, using. It was like perfect match, basically. It was like the stars were aligning, literally. <laughs> I wanted to transition and there were people I admire who basically got this big prize. And yeah, I was looking at this technology. So I obviously took the job. That's just amazing how everything was aligned. And at the moment, you're completely captivated, right, by working on those proteins and developing. So maybe you can tell more, like, what are you currently working on at Cambrium? So we say that Cambrium is focusing on materials that matter. So let's talk about materials maybe first. They are everywhere, from the textiles that you're wearing, your cotton t-shirt today, from the cosmetics that we are wearing, the packaging, the plastic you use for wrapping your food, all those things. And basically Cambrium is uh, trying to build and use protein to define new sustainable materials and replace chemicals which are long out there, but not necessarily sustainable. So most of them come from the petrochemical industry, mm -hmm. which means that usually they are first taking resources which are scarce on this planet, but they are also very hard to recycle. So as a big vision uh, at Cambrium, we really have basically this idea of using protein with different tools, AI, those genetic scissors, to be able to create new products which are more sustainable from the clothes that you're wearing to the plastic that you're using to package your food even to the concrete that you're using to build roads, right? This oh, is wow. also material that would... So drink. technically, I could be wearing a T-shirt, which is not made from very difficult to recycle material and ultimately plastics to protein-based biodegradable material. Correct. Yeah. And that's already when you compare synthetic textiles, for example, that you're already wearing. Like there is a lot of like textile, which are like synthetic Compared to cotton, cotton is much easier, right, to recycle. And as soon as you have a blend of natural plus synthetic, the sustainability angle or how you can basically reprocess them is very, very difficult. So you could wear and use a lot of things where proteins are basically um, helping the materials to be stronger, more elastic, but warmer, etc. I can talk about proteins a bit maybe later, but they are everywhere around us, right? They are mm -hmm. made by nature. So this is a technology that we know really well. I'm also trying to understand, so one of the products that, and probably your your first product that you worked on was Novacol, and this one comes specifically from the beauty industry. Mm -hmm. How did you produce it, and like, why did you decide to start with this product? So why cosmetic? I think the, the first answer is, it's an amazing playground for innovation. You know, like people in the cosmetic industry are using a lot of either petrochemical-derived raw materials but also things which are extracted from animals. The collagen, for example, is mainly extracted from animals. So it's obvious not, obviously not very sustainable. And they have a product cycle in terms of innovation, which is extremely fast. So they need to come with innovation almost every, every year. So they are every, even faster, right? So they are super eager to discover new things which are efficient, but also sustainable. That's why we started working with them for their basically eagerness and uh, willingness to play with us along the way and just test new raw materials along the way. I'm curious to know, like, where do you still have maybe difficulties and challenges when it comes to producing proteins and the material innovation? 
I think here in our case, if you look at petrochemicals, they are used for decades, right? There, it's easy to produce them at scale. We know exactly how they work. With what we are doing, it's completely new. So there is always this very big issue of how do you come to scale? This is extremely complicated. And scale is always coming with a price. So if you produce very small scale, it's going to be obviously very expensive. The more you scale your innovation, the price is actually going down. So more people are interested about using your, your product. And the product, the problem we have today is that petrochemicals are so well established that their price per kg is very, very low. So we are trying with innovation to catch up with those prices, but there is still basically a window in the middle mm. where certain industry won't be willing to turn their focus to us just because of price reasons. But I think in our space, there is a lot of biotech companies already which have very mature products for at scale. Cambrium is at scale as well, but we still need to grow. And I think, yeah, it's just a question of, of time to, to mature and, and be ready for, for the broader market. I'm also curious to understand if like, if we break down the process of the work at Cambrium, uh -huh. because as I understand, you have a lab, you also have engineers, you also work with the AI. Uh -huh. So how does this process looks like? And also why is AI is important for you to produce those materials and proteins? Like how does this enable you to work? Is it more efficient? Are you then able to work faster? Uh -huh. Then maybe with, with the flow that you could introduce that you're working on, on those products. Uh -huh. So you're a biotech company, so I will talk a lot maybe about biology and also technology. Mm -hmm. The first step is to design the product, like in every, I think, design or product process. And that's where we use AI. So we design computationally before going in what we call the wet lab, which is a real lab with scientists, an amazing team where we are actually testing if the computer program was actually right. So we use biology as our factory as our engine to basically grow our new molecules. So we say that we grow as opposed to extract, right? Mm -hmm. In chemistry, you extract things from the ground or for different sources. In our case, we use biology as micro factories to basically grow what we are producing. And then we use different technology and different tools to basically help us to design. So AI comes there at the design phase. Then we basically have a design which is ready to go to the lab and be tested. We use our micro factories to grow our materials and the genetic scissors I was mentioning before are there basically to fine tune our innovation. So these are all steps of the development in the labs that we are uh, trying to tame to get exactly the functionalities that we want. When it comes to materials, you want to do things which are either elastic, waterproof, warm, and this is all things that we can basically test in the lab before uh, being able to test them as prototypes. Mm -hmm. And AI here is very, very important. So biology is probably the most advanced science that you can use out there. It's everywhere, in the trees, in, the, in humans, in animals, but it's extremely complex. It's not like chemistry where you can almost write an equation A plus B equals C. Biology will always be very, very surprising. So that means that the landscape that you're exploring is, is massive. We would not be able to develop products that fast without AI, basically. I mean, also speaking about scalability, that uh -huh. helps to scale a lot of things. Exactly. Understand the process, what are the bottlenecks, what are the difficulties. So this is very, very helpful. Like you have to imagine that biology was used by nature for millions of years to basically create and design almost the most perfect things out there, like the plants that we have or everything we see around us. So we don't have those years. And without AI, basically, we would be extremely slow at developing those products. So it's very helpful to understand how the protein uh, behave, how to tame there and 
how to uh, therefore accelerate the process design. Maybe you can imagine proteins as a necklace of pearls where every pearls of every colors would have a different functions. Mm -hmm. And you have those very long necklaces and you can basically mix up the pearls and get to different functions depending on the sequence you get on the pearls. And this is basically an explanation of how complex the problem can be because you have so many pearls or so many building blocks that you can put in different sequences, which are extremely long, and you want only the best candidates for your product. So if you see proteins as a necklace, I think it's very helpful and see that as a massive element that you want to try to understand. And that's why we use AI to basically solve this very complex problem. Thanks a lot for explaining. And I think this example is very, very helpful. And maybe just coming back to the personal care industry, because as I understand, this is also something you're focusing on a lot mm -hmm. in cosmetic and personal care industry. And there's something that you mentioned when we wrote was natural and active beauty, where natural beauty is predominantly associated with plant-based actives and active beauty refers to synthetically produced mm -hmm. products. Like, can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, it feels like almost there are two different teams right now, even in consumers we see a lot of people saying, I'm, I'm more using natural beauty, I'm more using active beauty. I strongly believe, and that's also my work at Cambrium and of the team, that we can basically merge the best of both worlds. Imagine, for example, as an active, you have retinol, which is an amazing anti-aging. A lot of people are using that, but it's synthetic, hence harmful to the people and also the planet. But then you have natural alternatives, which is the bakushol, right? Which is an oil, which is really great at anti-aging, but I think like the efficacy from Bakushol is not as great as, as retinol. What we are doing is using biology to create things which are sustainable the same way that Bakushol would be, mm -hmm. but we are also taming it through the, all the technology that we are using to have the same efficacy than something which would be synthetic. Mm. And we're really trying to unite both those words to have to basically make no compromises anymore on, on what you're using. Lucy, like, what is your personal connection, maybe take on beauty, since you're working so much on it in this area? So I wanted to get to this field also personally it was a, as I was studying chemistry, because to me it felt like the most creative field I could go as a chemist when I was studying. And I think that was kind of a good idea, right? Because when you have a look at, at cosmetics, they are getting inspiration from a lot of different industry. The food industry, the pharmaceutical industry even the textile industry. So you get to work with so many different technologies and you try to bring that extremely fast to the end consumers. So I think even if you can criticize a lot of things about the cosmetic industry, they are all still driving research in the right direction in terms of sustainability, etc. And I think you just have to choose your camp for who you're working and who is basically aligned with your value to work in this industry. So I still really like working with the people from this industry creative people, extremely friendly. And yeah, their work is very hard. Like you have to work very fast to find out what's new out there. And I think they, they get inspired from many different industries, mm -hmm. which I think is interesting as a job because you're, you're basically keeping an eye open on, on everything which is happening in the, in the science world. Is there some latest trends that you've been following? In hair care, there is Ragnar and it's also actually kind of what Cambrium is also doing this bonding hair for strengthening the properties of your hair. And there is a product called K18, mm. which became very, very popular. So they design a protein just for the sake of repairing your hair, but really repair the bond from the inside out, which is quite impressive because usually there is a lot of hair care products which are uh, superficial and repair your hair until you actually 
get to the next shampoo and wash out everything. But this one is really impressive from a, from a design perspective. There is a great team in the US which worked on that. They worked 10 years on it, a couple of great patents. And I think it's also, yeah, a nice echo to what we are doing at, at Cambrium, efficacy together with, with great design and also sustainability. That's so incredible. I mean, I can imagine how much is like happening in this space and all the niche products and innovations that you're following probably they're not even available on the market. And this is just early stages for many different products that's soon going to be uh, something normal that people use in the daily care. It's fascinating that you have this first insight, the first sneak peek into those things. Mm -hmm. I love it. I was wanting to also to come back to the topic of AI and understand basically how you know, AI has been such a big topic this year, and it's buzzing everywhere possible. I mean, new company startups are saying they're AI-powered. We have people saying that their life has changed forever because of their productivity, because of AI tools and products and services that you use. What has your relationship with AI been this year? I think it's really important to recognize that we are all using AI already, even without understanding it sometimes or realizing, like I'm talking about Spotify and the algorithm, which is behind your favorite songs or Netflix, even like ChatGPT, which can be your personal assistant. So my relationship with AI is just to try get learning, to get the best results out of it. Again, informed naivety. I, I try not to be scared about this progress and just trying to learn how to use them. I think AI is very difficult and one has to be very careful how to use it, have a very critical mind. But when you have that, I think you can learn about how to prompt the best question to get the best answer. So it's basically a great productivity tool. It can also yeah, help us to do great science. So we always say at Cambrium, even for people who want to join us and are basically open to work with AI, that it helps us broadening our landscape of what we can do as science, which is, I think if you're curious as a scientist, you should be super excited about this. Mm-hmm. Do you have some examples of how you personally use it in everyday? I use ChatGPT a lot as a personal assistant. I would say it's almost like an extension of, of the team, right? Asking questions, making research, but more on a personal level, planning holidays. Okay, tell me more. <laughs> uh, I very often have a set of requirements to go on holidays. You want to go for a hike, you want to go scuba diving, you want to stay in Europe and have a direct flight from Berlin, you want to fly from a Wednesday to Wednesday. So in the end of the day, it's a very complex equation to solve on your own just with Google searching, right? So if you enter that in ChatGPT, is literally coming up with like a roadmap or like a plan and schedule for your holidays. And then you can just check out if you like the destination. So it's pretty impressive. I think when you ask the right questions, it can be really a game changer in terms of time and organization, even use it as a tool for brainstorming, right? I think you will get all the information in a very nice organized way and it's helping ordering your thoughts basically. What do you say to people who say like, well, it's not working properly yet. It's disappointing. I wrote a prompt, but it's not really giving me the results I want. It's supposed to help me with content creation, but it's all very like sounds weird. When people are not happy with ChatGPT and their expectations are kind of low, like what is your response? It's also happening to me. It's like a constant learning curve, but I think I mean, the same way when you work with someone and basically have a request and you don't get what you want in return, maybe what you said in the beginning was not precise enough, right? So I'm always telling the people to work on their prompt and also get uh, training about what's the best way to use it. 
But I think, yeah, I've been really often working with people also in the past. I was already using AI in my first jobs and who their mindset was also very reticent to use the tool. But I think it, it's, it's a learning. It's like uh, a different discipline that you have to learn. I learned chemistry, I learned biology, and now I'm learning how to use ChatGPT. And after like a certain learning curve, I think you, you just become much more efficient. And it's also, I mean, let's look into it. I think that's going to be constant part of our life, especially at work. And I personally don't want to miss the boat. Also, just growing as person in, in a certain industry, I think this is really something which will be a plus in the future. That's very important that you say that because we, we should try it. And I mean, as you said, there's at the beginning, it's not 100%. We, we talked about the naivety, mm-hmm. right? Again, yeah. the favorite approach, I'm coming back to it because it, it feels like it. You're, you're like, well, it's not working out. Well, I'm going to try there's some things to improve, but it's a process. And we sometimes need just to accept that things are taking a little bit longer. And mm-hmm. it's and it's fine to go through that learning process. And by the way, I mean, you mentioned that you worked with AI before. And I was reading that like you had notable achievements, including launching two globally awarded AI-driven cosmetic tools. So it was tools, it was something else. And you co-authored 12 patents. Like, wow. Yeah, thank you. Congrats. I mean, and this was before your time joining Cambrium, right? Correct. So that was uh, in my first jobs. I had the chance of building a team, trying to use predictive analytics, which is, let's say, the little sister of AI, to try to run better research and development for the cosmetic industry. So I was very lucky to be there to build this team, basically merging the science of chemistry together with the science of data analysis and have both those skills in the same laboratory and work together. We worked on a very cool tool, which was predicting the exact hair color you would obtain with your hair coloration, depending on your hair status and your hair damage, which was at the time like a very, very funny equation to try solving together with big data. So yeah, and we launched a couple of applications for, for customers to do product recommendations that was indeed very fun. I think this is the part of science that I, I love doing, right? There is a product in the end of the day, which is making people's life easier and funnier. And for me, like, yeah, the research on that was an absolute blast. I was really having fun with my team doing this. So it's actually like taking my natural hair color. It looks at the hair health. Mm-hmm. And then it's hair coloring and the outcome of that. Or what kind of hair color outcome mm-hmm. comes from that? So we were checking your hair status, so different data, your hair health and color. And I don't know if, if you're familiar with hair coloration, but usually when you take something in the store and you're trying out your hair, yeah, yeah, you always get a very surprising output if you're not really knowledgeable about how to use hair coloration like hairdresser or... There's also like a topic that comes through your journey, I feel, is like trusting yourself over the years and like it's interesting that you, there was moments that you couldn't trust yourself as much, given that there was so much success in humans you had so early on, but still you felt that you had to learn to trust yourself. Like, why do you think that was the case? And how did you manage to grow into more like, okay, I can trust myself today. I don't need to mm-hmm. have this doubt. I think the big learning were to remember moments which were with distance looking like a success, even though in the process... I felt like it was extremely hard, right? I have this example about public speaking. To be honest, that was really not always my my forte and still not. I'm always having this sensation before going on stage. I'm extremely stressed and I have, you know, I'm starting sweating from my hands and I, I forget my text. 
it's a very challenging situation to be in. And I remember this moment where I had very few time for preparation. I barely slept basically because I was on another event just the day before a certain Congress when I was talking about this innovation on hair and predictive analytics. And I was gearing up at the backstage and I didn't feel stressed and I didn't feel like I had this sensation of of being anxious. So you were already too tired, right? You were like... I think I was too tired. I was too stressed. Tired. You were like, you know what? <laughs> Let's just go with the flow. Or like whatever happens right now is it can't be that bad. <laughs> exactly. So compared to my other experiences, it was actually a very good one. And then I, I really tried to understand, okay, what was the difference? And I think I was so passionate about what I was doing. I was fully hands-on together with my, my team who was so nice to work with. And I was so happy to show their work on this stage. So I think, yeah, with this passion, I just went there and told my story and I got really nice feedback, even though, to be very honest, up to now, I'm wondering how I did that because I, I still feel very stressed when I'm, I'm doing public speaking time to time. So I'm really always trying to anchor this passion and why am I talking about that? What's the underlying message you have there? So maybe I want to promote science for female or maybe I want to show people that AI is actually fun to use. But I'm always trying to really think about that before I'm going somewhere. And it's really helping me to remember why I'm doing that instead of like just focusing on the fact that I should be stressed because mm -hmm. I'm going to talk in front of people. But that's beautiful. I think when you're really passionate about it and connected, then you actually speak from your heart mm -hmm. and you're very natural because if you don't connect that then you might not be able to find the right words or the right way to express yourself. But for me, it's interesting because I also like public speaking. Sometimes I'm like, oh boy, like this is very weird. But I read that there was one recommendation, like you have to start make jokes at the beginning mm -hmm. because you relax yourself and you relax the people. So I had a couple of like live podcast events and I would always start with jokes and I still don't know if it's a good idea, but it's somehow puts away this formality mm -hmm. and things just calm down. Yeah. You know? And I'm just like, this is me. Everyone just take me as I am and let's get started now. Yeah. It's a serious conversation. But the energy in the room becomes different. I will take that as an advice for the next one. <laughs> and uh, I also heard recently that it's totally fine not to feel comfortable talking in public. And it's also fine to voice it out when you start actually presenting. So I was actually trying that recently and I just started by saying, Hi, I'm Lucille, and it's very impressive to be in front of this crowd today, but I'm really happy to be here. And just by saying that, I felt much more comfortable because I felt like I was not hiding something and I was more like true to myself. So there is all those little tricks out there to dare. That we have to dare and embrace. I yeah. mean, better than not doing and then just regretting that you never tried maybe. It's like speaking out or doing something. Mm -hmm. It's a process. Lucy, this brings me to the very last question for our conversation today. And there were so many important topics we covered. And the last one is as important as all before is who is your woman author of achievement? Mm -hmm. I think I talked before about Jennifer Dudna, right? She's a scientist based in the US. She's an, uh, an amazing woman. And I'm not saying that before because she has a Nobel Prize. I'm more saying that because how she portrayed herself, she's really like a normal woman. You know, she has those amazing ach achievements, but she's talking about herself as she was a kid, as a non-genius person, just about like a normal person who was interested in science. So she's very, very honest. And I think also on a personal level, like her discovery, which was awarded, literally influenced me into my career joining Cambrium. So I think I could name a lot of women, but I, when I was basically reading your question, I thought about Jennifer Dudna. I think she influenced me on a professional and personal level. 
And it's really nice to see women in science. I think we should see more and more. And there were not so many uh, when I grew up. And I think that also led to this identity crisis I had because I could not identify to anyone. So yeah, I wish to see uh, more of us out there in the future. Thank you for sharing her name. And I mean, we're lucky, I think, even when growing up without role models, but continuing and becoming one is as important. So who knows, maybe there will be an episode far in the future and someone will mention your woman as a woman in science. So if there's not great examples that we should try our heart to be those examples, if we can. And I think there's the beauty of it and a bit of a challenge as well. So again, thank you for sharing her name. And Lucia, this wraps up our conversation. I think we talked a lot about, um, really appreciate your input on AI. And I think also like understanding the work you do at Cambrium. I think I'm curious to know what will be the next products that you will be working on and how this area is being developed further. What is next innovation? How things become more effective when it comes to the protein development and those innovation and material design. You know, you're not the first guest that sees the future behind it. And I had a guest who talked about food proteins mm -hmm. and how that can change. The more conversations we have and introduce it, the more it becomes a norm, but also people might start chiming in their interest and expertise into these areas to help drive this innovation because innovation also needs people of different perspectives and skill set. Are you hiring? <laughs> we are hiring. So we are looking into different roles, not only in scientific roles, but also in commercials. So yeah, I think if people are hearing that, in sales, in marketing, also people and culture, uh, but also in science, people who are both working on the engineering part, automation, AI, data science, but also uh, in my team, research and development, where we are looking to biologists and chemists in general. So Cambrium in Berlin, really looking forward to meet a lot of people from there. Perfect. I think it's such a great opportunity. Also, sometimes people might think like, oh, I'm not really sure if this is for me or because I work, maybe someone might say I work more like in a not a biotech, but maybe like a fintech. Mm -hmm. It feels different. But why not, right? Why not? And I mean, if you have an economic or like commercial profile, it's also an amazing opportunity to learn about those fascinating mm -hmm. innovations, right? And be like also part of an amazing team in Berlin and yeah, work about something which is important for the future. So I think we've seen amazing people joining the team who had no clue about biology. And I'm so impressed by them. Oh, wow. How they are <laughs> able to basically understand the whole science behind it and run their job as usual. It's very impressive. There's always a starting point. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being on my show, Lucille, and excited to see you again in Berlin. Thank you so much, Daria, for the invitation. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.